0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring.
1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well and I'm very energised and up
2: for the fight having seen the Four Corners show last uh, night, which a number of our listeners may also have seen, which went through the politics of the last 10 years, a period that's been very... uh, painful for a number of us, and I think our special guest this evening is going to uh, have some thoughts on that topic as well.
1: Yes, look, yes, um, absolutely. Look, um, before I introduce our special guest, um, yes, my brief take of the Four Corners, which I'll come into later, was um, it did give an interesting insight into what some of the senior public servants um, both... uh, the, uh, the people, heads of department and the chief scientists um, thought of the last 10 years. Interesting stuff. And look, someone who's been living through these climate battles over the last 10 years and has been playing a particularly interesting role over the last seven of those years is Julian Vincent, the executive director of Market Forces. Um, Julian, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me on. Look, market forces has made its presence um, increasingly felt one of a number of what I would describe as shareholder activists um, sort of agitating from the sidelines, trying to get uh, big institutions, fund managers, superannuation firms to think about the environmental impacts of their investments and trying to think about it in terms of improvement rather than just allowing degradation as they turn their eyes away from it shareholder activism the right description for your operation
3: not really i'd say it's <laughs> <none of> the... <laughs> sorry to, to blow out of the water straight from rough me off um no i mean it's it's something that we do it's one of a number of you call it a strategy that we that we use to influence financial institutions um so we recognize that shareholders and investors are incredibly important with their voice. And and what we're trying to do is tap into that and build pressure for the changes we're trying to create among financial institutions. So if it's a bank, we want them to commit to stop financing projects that expand the scale of the fossil fuel industry and start setting targets for their exposures that are, are aligned with Paris. And of course we do that through the the, the publication of research into the what they have been doing often is lending to um, coal, oil and gas projects and the extent of that, trying to round up their customers to put pressure on, um, raise reputational risks. But the investors are another really powerful voice in that. And so we try and I guess surround the institution that we're trying to change with the same same message from a number of audiences that they find influential. Um, But I'd say it's had an enormous amount of impact on our work and the work of other organizations, um, in the last couple of years especially, where the momentum that's been built through institutional investors in particular to support climate risk disclosure and management activities, has made it really hard for uh, companies to ignore that.
2: So Julian, just on that, uh, I, I was really struck by the, in 2019, and just to give our listeners a feel, and there's a number of other companies I could talk about, but just pick one. Rio had six uh, percent of shareholders supported a motion uh, for more climate or better climate disclosures. And uh, this year, if 2020 report, uh, when the meeting was held, that had jumped from six percent to thirty-seven percent this year. Um, I was just wondering if you is, do you think that's uh, more widespread than just at Rio, or what's what's your sense of how much? uh the investor climate is at the moment compared to where it's been in the
3: past yeah that was a really staggering change for us i mean we worked on both of those resolutions and uh, had my tail well and truly between my legs at coming out of the agm in 2019 um and to see that grow by you know six fold over a one-year period was incredible but it's one of a number of votes that have really shown investors are starting to run out of patience with companies that are blocking climate action. And I think just the, the level of awareness and desire for change among institutional investors is changing quite a lot. I mean, I, I could probably spend the entire time talking about my frustrations with Australian superannuation funds and just the, the limited amount of knowledge and also it's like a willful ignorance in a lot of the sector to to not want to engage and not want to act but the more that this sector has been targeted and outed as influential and required to act on behalf of whether it's their members or other other stakeholders i think we've seen that filter through into support for these resolutions and the previous week to rio you, you had Woodside. Um, the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility put a resolution up that actually got over 50% of the vote calling for targets to align with um, the the Paris climate goals. So that was a a real um, landmark for uh, climate-related resolutions in Australia and it's hard to see it going any other direction than up. So it just makes campaigning for these kinds of policy changes and, and practical changes from companies all the more easy.
1: So just um, just your um, the it, when you're engaging with these companies, I mean, are you simply just approaching them through letters, or are you approaching the institutions? How do you go about that? Do, do do you make any direct approach to the board of directors and the chief executives and the chair people themselves? And do you have any private meetings? I mean, how does that go? Do they try and sort of fob you off? Do they try to engage you? Say, trust me, Julian, it's all okay. We're trying to do the right thing. Um. What, Give, give us an insight into to what happens then.
3: Sure. It's um, it's it's amazing how varied it has been, actually. So if you go back two or three years, we were very much in the business of drafting templated letters that we would fire off left, right and centre and, and try and get meetings where we could. I, I suppose because of the history of having done that work in the last couple of years and building up contacts, then we don't do so much of that and we know who we're going to speak to. But we might find two similar companies, one will outright dismiss us, the other one will want to sit down and actually understand what we're, we're interested in and want to change with them. And to be honest, I haven't figured out what that, if there's a formula behind that or some sort of algorithm I'm not yet um, aware of that determines how a company will approach us. But the, the one thing I have noticed that is very much um, the personnel seem to have a, a huge bearing on that. So when you've got a company that has made an effort to put people who genuinely care about sustainability and climate change into positions that have genuine power and aren't just in some dank dreary office down the the corridor with a, a a flickering light and actually give them some some power and some um some gravitas in their role, then that does tend to mean you've got a a better dialogue with the company. It might not get you a better outcome, but it certainly doesn't hurt. So, we've had meetings you know, we'll have meetings with um, heads of investor relations and corporate affairs, uh, the corporate social responsibility teams, and depending on where the engagement's got to with the company, it could go up to the CEO or members of the board. So, we have met with several um, chairs of the various uh, companies, and we're talking, I guess, ASX 50 the largest companies.
2: And Julian, there's a number of bits and pieces that we could talk about, but I I just, uh, I want to come back to companies, but I thought I might ask, you mentioned superannuation funds, and and, and they, they like companies, are, are complex beasts, you know, and you mentioned individuals, and the point is that there are lots of people with lots of different points of view and uh, I guess different objectives in terms of getting paid. In, in Like a superannuation fund, the, super, the chief investment officer's uh, responsibility is, is, is generally to invest the money safely, uh, whereas they may have an ESG department that sort of looks, looks on things differently. And uh, from where I sit, it's always been the difficulty of getting the actual most important person, which typically is the chief investment officer or the risk officer, uh, to to take it as seriously as sort of the advertising or marketing department which would like to talk about their green credentials. Uh, uh, how are how are you finding things going with the super super funds?
3: I think that's David, that's actually one of the you've put on one of the real struggles here. So you can take so that the example I was giving before about the the use of shareholder activism is one of many ways you want to get the same message sent into a company from other stakeholders that a company as an entity cares about, you're right within that company. If it's a super fund, you need to unpack that to the point where you're making sure that, that your message is coming across not just the environmental social governance team, but it's the marketing people, it's the analysts, it's the chief investment officer and their team, it's trustees, um, and doing the same job internally Within a company and, and within a super fund, and I think that's one of the areas that it's been a real struggle for us lately. Where I think you do have quite a few people who are, are genuinely on the side, but the interface between them and they're often working in sustainability. Uh, the interface between them and the analysts and the the money managers who, for whatever reason, just haven't quite caught up to reality, uh, doesn't give us a healthy dynamic. You know, there's not a, a an effective balance of Power between those roles, and you're still seeing superannuation funds. I mean, just the other day, we got a letter back from UniSuper after I think it was 12,000 of their members wrote in an open letter that was put in the AFR as a full page ad saying, We want you to divest. And these are some of Australia's leading academics and researchers. They work day and night on issues that are, if not on climate change, are very closely related. Uh, being forced to invest in companies that are, have their business strategies dependent on the failure of Paris. So, of course, they want their they super divested from these companies. Um, and you're still getting an outright refusal. So, a challenge that we need to overcome is um, really breaking down internally within these institutions where decisions get made and where power comes from and how to influence that. Um, but it doesn't stop me having a really good old whinge about how they're asleep at the wheel in the short term. Perhaps you can
1: talk to some of the uh, more successful campaigns that you've had. You, you, you've you mentioned um, in, in our chat sort of before the podcast that some of the biggest successes have actually come from outside of Australia. Can you tell us exactly what that has been and, and and why that might be the case?
3: Yeah, sure. So we we do work outside of Australia as well. I mean, it's it's really easy to forget when you're in Australia that just on our doorstep, you have countries that have massive proposed pipelines of new coal power stations, and it's just a, a very different energy scenario to, to what we're going through in Australia. And where there's coal, there's people who are um, have their lives turned upside down. If it's not through pollution, then it's through livelihood disrupt, disruption or something else. And of course, there's a climate impact of that. So we've been trying to support organisations in countries like Indonesia, um, Vietnam, Bangladesh elsewhere, where there's major pipelines of new coal power. Often what we end up doing is representing those interests where the groups aren't aren't unable to do it themselves to financial institutions. And these will be in countries like Japan, Korea. um, We would love to say China, because that's critical, um, but that's been harder. And Singapore, um, countries like that. And so a couple of years ago, we had, um, we had, and efforts to get Singapore's major banks. So DBS, OCBC, UOB um, won't be very well-known names to most people in Australia, but really increasingly important in funding new coal power stations. And really what we did is just a very low level. I think we probably turned the dial up to about two out of 10 in terms of reputational risk. But I think because it's such a risk averse context, uh, it made it much easier for us to, when we raised that reputational risk, it had a much higher impact than it would have had on the likes of a, an ANZ or Commonwealth Bank, where there's just a, a much heightened level of sensitivity. And we very quickly turned around, I think it was 18 months after we started the campaign, we had all three banks committed to not fund new coal-fired power stations, and we still haven't actually got that out of all of Australia's uh, major banks.
2: And so, so this is uh, I mean, just to
3: just to come back on that, that it's it was really that this um this wild card that we, we talk about in, in advocacy of reputational risk, which is this um incredibly immeasurable yet immensely powerful um factor.
2: So reputation is in, in indeed important, but sometimes when it comes to a fight between reputation and dollars, it's despite everything that people say, it's it's dollars that win the day. Um uh, I guess one of the things that uh, market forces, and you mentioned the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, which is a kind of new kid on the block, and you've got other organisations, you've got the RE100. I, I sometimes wonder why we couldn't have a more coordinated approach, but maybe it's better if, they, if, if you guys all work separately. But one of the big themes, and I saw this written up even in the Herald by Bob Carr, has been basically that some big fund managers, some big insurers, and quite a lot of banks have been gradually making stronger and stronger uh, commitments to reduce forward financing or insurance. How are you? How would you describe the state of play there? Is that battle won, or have we just started to make some inroads, or is the you know where do you think we're up to on that that particular part of it?
3: Yeah, this is where I really like to observe the, the finance sector in contrast to what the government's attempting to do. Um, whereby we're trying to make sure that if the government's trying to keep coal power plants running as long as they possibly can, which you know I think AGL's got the scars to, to prove that's the case, um, we're trying to make sure that anyone trying to run a coal power plant or a coal mine, a thermal coal mine in Australia beyond, say, 2030 when you know, we need to have phased out of coal power in in OECD countries, Um, we just want to make sure they can't get finance. If they can't get insurance and they can't get a a bank loan and they can't get institutional investment, well, it doesn't really matter what um, the the government decides the, the policy settings can be. Without the money, they just can't stay operational. So, you know, what we're trying to do is really put that distance between the just Ridiculous, outrageous policies of the, especially the federal government, and where smart money needs to go. And so, when you see Westpac saying we're going to get out of thermal coal by twenty thirty, uh, Commonwealth Bank that did the same thing last year. All three of Australia's general insurers have done that. We're just trying to make it that less possible to to keep these projects running beyond a time frame that is inconsistent with Paris. And that will force the owners and will force the industries to reorganise themselves and. Ideally, start winding up these assets.
2: Look, I'll, I'll hand back to Giles, but I just want to point out: if you look at and there's a number of reports about this, what happens is that they, in fact they they still end up getting the money. They just get it from uh, Chinese banks and, uh, in some cases, uh, private equity or hedge funds in the United States and from Japan. Uh, maybe the money costs more, but I mean, I'm not quite sure. It, it is it still is progress to force them to to go to this you know, other money, but it, I, I guess it gives the China and Japan more influence and control. And I think this is an underappreciated thing in the coal industry, just how much of it is actually foreign owned already. But, uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about, about that before I hand back to Charles.
3: I think that's, that's something that we've observed, but it's, it's not a, it's not a d- direct, um, impact every time. So, you know, and and I'd put career in in that same bucket, um, David as well. Um, so there are there are interests, and when a an Australian investor um, is unwilling to finance a project, it does open the possibility for others to to come in. However, it's worth noting that there are similar campaigns being run with similar effects in throughout Asia, Europe, and North America, and probably the most Effective that I would um, remind everyone of is the um, the insurance work. Where if you can't get an insurance for your your coal power plant in Australia from an uh, from an Australian insurer in twenty thirty, you're you're sure as hell not going to get it from anyone in in Europe and almost certainly not in the US. I mean, we still need to tackle every single point of potential finance, but it's about getting more and more institutions on the right side.
0: Well, you,
1: I'm just looking through your website, and um, you've actually got a, a, a reasonably big team. I kind of imagine it was just a handful of people, but I think there's about 15 people there. I don't know, between 12 and 15. I don't know whether they're all sort of full-time or some of them are part-time. Mm. And your list of campaign targets is quite extensive. I mean, anything from Adelaide-Brighton through to Caltech, through to the insurers, the bankers, Santos, Rio, um, and all those other ones. Is it possible, I mean, who, who you sort of, um, who's the big focus at the moment, and um You know, where can you sort of can give us some sort of insight into where your successes and failures have been, or your well, maybe not describe it as failures, but sort of frustrations at just not being able to get through because you can't get through the board or the or the shareholders or whatever. Sort of, um, and or or maybe you might describe it in 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 terms of you know what your current really active campaigns are and, and why they are so important.
3: Yeah. Sure thing. I mean, the the size of the team is, I think, well, I hope, because this is how we want to operate, is still small enough that we can be swift and nimble enough to change things around. And that really relates to the, the priorities that we take on in our program work. So whilst there are dozens, at a minimum, number of, uh, you call them campaign targets or companies that were released monitoring and ensuring and there's some degree of uh, engagement with, um, we do want to be able to make sure that we can, if, if we need to change direction at a, at a moment's notice, we can do that pretty swiftly. But as far as the main priorities go right now, it's really difficult to look beyond um, a really small set of, in Australia, the a small set of companies in the ASX that simply have, not only have no place in a decarbonized economy, but also no interest in one. And so these are the likes of, you know, on the coal side, it'd be Whitehaven, New Hope on on gas. It's Coronado. Um, Yeah, right. Um, I mean, these are companies that we've gone to and and others have gone to and said, hey, any chance you could tell us, you know, how you fare in a decarbonized economy or set some targets to reduce emissions? And they say, no, stuff you, We're, um, we're following the IEAs. new policies or current policies or stated policies or whatever it's called now scenarios, essentially we're following a, a pathway that is contingent on the failure of the Paris Agreement. And the fact that you can have any bank or any super fund that dares to speak about the Paris Agreement still invested in these companies is absolutely absurd in this day and age. So I think if you go to most of these companies, you find most of the projects, the expansionary projects, that um, fortunately, because of the the current situation with COVID, many of them have been delayed, but we've given ourselves a really brief window to jump in there and intervene to make sure they don't actually proceed. I mean, I think we all appreciate that we're just not in a position to expand the scale of the fossil fuel industry if we're serious about meeting the goals of Paris. We've given ourselves a little opportunity here with a handful of companies and, and a large number of expansionary projects that simply can't proceed to make sure that their investors won't tolerate it. They're either, they won't be in that company or they make sure that company is transitioning, which they're not going to do, or actually start winding up their operations in a Paris aligned timeframe. Let's stop wasting capital on trying to build the next massive offshore LNG project. Um, that capital can stay with the, the shareholders and the assets that exist can wind up in a Paris consistent timeframe and we get the most efficient, hand back of the, the money to shareholders, and we get an outcome that's consistent with a, a safe long-term climate. So, so that's what I'd say in, in Australia. In over, overseas, we have other targets, but I'm not sure if you want to go there.
2: I just thought I might uh, uh, point out for our listeners some of the numbers that, I guess, go to the political difficulties and why it, it's sometimes of interest to go to shareholders, if we look at employment neither coal mining with about 50 53,000 but sometimes as low as 35,000 uh, or renewable or renewable energy has about 20 25,000 employees to give you an idea of the relative both of those are very small numbers but when you come to the state governments you look at royalties in new south wales it's uh about $1.8, $1.9 billion of coal royalties per year. And in Queensland, which has a very bad budget, let's face it, it's a balance sheet, it's about $3.5 billion a year of coal royalties. And that's really the political influence that we have to go around. And I think one of the challenges for the renewable energy industry is to show, irrespective of the fantastic health and the necessity of decarbonising, to show the economic benefits, uh, uh, but um, I guess the, the, the point, Julian, is that you go to the companies, but going politically seems to be very difficult.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, we can add to this as well, the likes of political donations. Um, I mean, challenging the status quo is hard, and that's why it's taking so bloody long, Um and that's why we're glad that every every single win we get just builds more and more momentum. Um, we need to be always cognizant of the fact that we're talking about trying to displace an industry that is extremely well set up to lobby for itself, um, to market for itself, and carries itself with an enormous amount of swagger um, as a result of that. And so it takes an enormous amount of deconstructing Um, So, you know, anyone else that wants to roll up their sleeves and jump into the the battle, then they're more than welcome. The one thing I'd say probably works most in our favour to counteract that is, you know, when you see polls that talk about how how much people want to see climate change action, how concerned people are uh, about um, climate change and its impacts, we're talking the vast majority of Australians. And so what I've really had to learn, I think, I think one of the areas that I wish we'd have done a better job of in our advocacy in recent years is appreciating just how many of those people work at the companies that we're trying to influence. You know, last year we did a lot of work with the um, the Stop Adani campaign, where we started to focus on some of the companies that were working with Adani, engineering firms, for instance, and were just overwhelmed by the number of people that were essentially silenced, not. Sometimes it was directly, sometimes it was through company edicts, but sometimes it was just culturally. They didn't want to speak up about their company working on the Carmichael project, but we gave them an opportunity to do that. So we would reach out, we'd reach them on LinkedIn, we'd get them to do a survey, and we'd give them a voice. And we found that, you know, one example was GHD, where the company just sort of... It was like a, a playbook of how to handle a, a community campaign in exactly the wrong way. It tried to silence debate. It tried to prevent even internal conversation among employees and, and just pretend that it, it wasn't an issue. Um, and yet at the same time, we and other groups were reaching out to employees and saying, hey, we're here to help. We're here to give you a voice and found that there was enormous, overwhelming sentiment against working on the Adani project and ultimately GHD pulled out as a result. Now that's a dynamic that exists everywhere just about everyone in Australia, I'm sure there's a few companies that are exceptions to that rule, but we can go into this with the best ex- expectations of the people that we meet.
2: And I, I'll go back to Giles in just a second. I just was going to make a very quick observation. When you look at the politics, and I was pulling out some numbers for the federal electorates in Queensland, there's probably less than, it's only about eighty to 100,000 people in North Queensland that you've got to change the mind of get them to vote a different way and and everything would change politically. Uh, back to you, Giles.
1: An interesting observation. I'm just wondering, I mean, are you sort of feeling that um, we're closer to a tipping point in the way that inf- investors can influence corporates or the corporates actually come around? I mean, we keep on hearing that um, corporate Australia is you know, and that, that you know they want to do the right thing on climate. They want to sort of reach some sort of zero emissions target. But when it comes down when the when the rubber hits the road, um, they kind of back away from any sort of meaningful policy. I mean, um, I, I, I I guess the push is probably going to come from public opinion, um, um, sound investments, and 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 and, and shareholders. Um, are you do you feel you're getting closer to that tipping point?
3: That's the trouble with t- tipping points, isn't it? Is you never know when, <laughs> when you're at one until you've just passed it. So <laughs> I, I feel like we've been standing on the tipping point pretty much constantly for the last few years. It, it, it's momentum, and I think it's all about momentum. It's, it's the amount of change that we see. I mean, geez, the, getting Japanese banks to say they're going to stop funding new coal power plants, um, which is something that we've seen happen in the last couple of months and you know, the, the governor of the Japan Bank for International Corporation, which is one of the biggest lenders to new fossil fuel projects. I mean, Japan has a phenomenal program through companies like Itochu and, and Mitsubishi and, and Sumitomo and others that are just have been proposing coal plants left, right and centre around the world, backed by um, the, the, the country's export credit agency. Their governor coming out and saying, we're not going to take any more applications for new coal power plants. It, just a world away from where we were even 18 months ago. So it just feels like momentum. It's like, if this is how much change we can achieve in the last 12 months, where you've got two Australian banks saying it's going to be cold, thermal, coal free by 2030, you've got um, these kinds of changes going on in, in Japan. And, and yeah, this is just a couple of little data points. It's happening all over the world. It's incredible to think about where we might be in just another six months or another year's time. And you know, I suppose that's the the reason why we can keep going through this when we're clearly up against the wall in terms of the the reality of climate change and what needs to happen. Like what we need to have happen is the sort of emission reductions that we're likely to see this year happen every year for at least the next decade or two, as a as a, mm. as a
1: proportion without, trashing, without so, trashing the economy. I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting
3: yeah exactly i mean doing it for all the right reasons yeah. except for the instead of the reasons that we've uh, we're yeah. doing it proactively instead of in, in response to a crisis
1: yeah. so, so you talk about those breakthroughs um it was interesting um david you mentioned the four corners report that broadcast on um, abc tv and i guess the sort of the fundamental point of that program was that nothing has changed in a decade and we sit here um you know more than 12 years after kevin Rudd's election 10 years after the copen more than 10 years after the copenhagen conference the first rejection of the cprs 5 years after the carbon pricing mechanism that was installed was trashed, um, nothing much has moved forward. Um, what was your take, David, of, um, of that program? Well, well Giles, I,
2: I well, I mean, I, I've got two takes. The political take is how badly all the politicians let themselves down. I mean, Kevin Rudd uh, walked away the first time the going got tough, and everyone knows that cut his thread with the electorate that that, that made him so popular. I feel Bob Brown just didn't try hard enough the first time around. I, having lived through that, I was I was amazed at the, the way the Greens handled it. Other people got different views. Um, um, and, and, you know, you look at it, John Howard actually emerges from, from that period with a lot of credit, as does Greg Combe. That's the political side of things. If you look at what's actually happened, the reality is that in electricity, the progress has gone on. It's not uh, We are at now at 20% uh, wind and solar. Uh, and if you add it in hydro, it's, it's another 6% or something. And we're going to be at close to 30% wind and solar within two or three years. I mean, what that's revealed is a whole bunch of technical challenges that, uh, 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 that you know, it's easy to be ideological. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts, it's actually pretty hard in some ways. It's manageable. You can do it. But there are these technical challenges around transmission and voltage and frequency so there's a lot of work there. But where I think uh, the reason why all the bureaucrats argued, uh, and I would agree with them largely, whether it's a carbon tax or a carbon price, carbon tax is administratively more simple. Uh, um, and, 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 uh, but a carbon price goes economy wide. So where we have made no progress, and state governments is in electric vehicles, electric buses. Uh, um, or in all the other sectors of the economy that need carbon reductions. I mean, a carbon price would work economy-wide. I, I've mentioned time and time again that we have a lot of taxes on oil in this country and no one, bar the odd whinge, ever really complains about yeah. them. They're just part of the national fabric and, and you don't think about it. But the, the you know the, the taxes on oil, on petrol, probably would have exceeded the impact on the, the average household to a carbon tax. So so that's where I think, anyway, oh. we're not going to get it with this current federal government, so so that's just all there is to it.
1: Yeah, look, I found it a fascinating program. Um, the insight and hearing from um, um, the likes of Peter Scholder, Shergold, Ken Henry and uh, Martin Parkinson, um, no relation, um, was pretty interesting. you did think it downplayed the sort of the forces of the right and the vested interest in the fossil fuel um um, interests And um, it did actually sort of almost sort of skim over what we did actually have, which was actually the product of a coalition between Labor, the Greens and some key independents, which was a pretty damn good scheme, Clean Energy Act, with... Um, a carbon price and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and Arena and the Climate Change Authority. Um, Its sole mistake was probably putting a fixed price, which was probably too high for the first couple of years, but um, it was there. It was a good mechanism. It was torn down, and um, I'm fascinated by this idea that everyone thought that the CPRS would not be torn down. But um, anyway, what we have learned today is that the government is still tweaking with its policies such as they are. Um, But um, the tweaks announced today, David, and I don't know whether you want to jump in here, Julian. um, don't seem to amount to a hill of beans apart from attempting to play around with this um, safeguard mechanism and probably making it even more attractive to some of the big polluters by actually paying them if they do get around to lowering emissions, trying to sort of find some mechanism to put money into carbon capture and storage, which just seems to me to be a bit of a waste of time, and um, trying to force ARENA and CFC to do exactly that. Um, this is hardly progress.
2: I'll hand over to Julian in a second for his comments, but my comment would be: it's the exact same thing as some super funds. They want to be looked to be seen doing something without actually doing anything. That's that's it. It's uh, you know, um, uh, playing lip service uh, to some notion of uh, carbon. That's because they think because in the end, you the Queensland, the North Queensland votes run the election, right? That is what. That is where federal elections are decided. They're decided in North Queensland. North Queensland doesn't want, hasn't been persuaded that it's uh, about the necessity of doing something about climate change. Julian, what do you think?
3: It's probably been a couple of years since anyone in finance has asked what we think about CCS. They know it's a stupid question now. Um, and so, I mean, it's maybe we need to get... You know, this is happening in private conversations so and maybe we need to get some of this sentiment a little bit more out there in the public domain but it's similar to what we know the government's trying to do with keep keeping existing say coal-fired power stations running past the a date they should be we're trying to make sure they can't get funded um we need the government to hear publicly um <laughs> via uh you know via media channels that investors aren't going to touch it you know everyone within the the, the insurance industry Asset management, banking will say, look, CCS is, is just not going to happen. And they'll, they won't they will even use modelling that includes uh, an allowance for CCS because they know it's just, it's pine in the sky. It's ridiculous. I, mean, we'd, I, I think those of us who paid any attention have, have, um, have known that debate's been won at least a decade ago. Mm.
2: It's as stupid as nuclear. Go on. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I think you summed it up there, David. Uh, sure. Can I just, I mean, just go ahead um, just going I mean go, going back I mean just on this question of uh, what's changed in the last 10 years as David was um, speaking about how you know we're only a couple of years away from say 30 percent penetration per renewable energy into the into the mix um, I remember ten years ago you would have uh, critics saying that's gonna not just be a challenge it's gonna break the grid it's not possible um, I think that's just a really another another great indication of how you know the people who say it can't be done shouldn't interrupt the people doing it and just get, get out of the way and, and let let change, let us get on with change.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that, and Giles, it's also worth mentioning that uh, dis, uh, despite all this new renewables in the system, or perhaps because of them, electricity prices uh, are still as low as they were last week, if not a bit lower. Um, it's rare to see a price over $40 at, uh, at the moment in any one of the NEM regions, you know, on a 24-hour on or seven-day moving average. So um, yes, um, we, we discussed this a bit last week, but I, look, it's, it's, important, to it's mention. Actually
1: worth important to mention. It's actually worth impo- uh, mentioning too that the Australian regulator put out their sort of quarterly um, assessment of um, prices and, and they mentioned the same thing, although they only managed to fit sort of gas into the headline for the reasons of the uh, prices falling. But I think it's pretty clear that... Um, that um, it's sort of in static demand and and, and more renewables into the system. Sure, the gas price has come down, but um, the amount of gas generation, according to their own figures, um, has re, um, reduced significantly so um, you know it's I I, I I kind of struggle when we see our institutions who are really supposed to be quite sort of neutral kind of keep on talking the talk about the fossil fuels um anyway and look I guess another disconcerting or rather alarming um, development is this um push to push back or delay a lot of these fundamental market reforms and we had we had um, a emo on last week and we've talked about the um the, the renewables integration study which talked about the need for uh, fast tracking or at least just changing some of the market rules and the regulations now they're talking about sort of actually delaying them including the five minute rule um, and the demand management introduction and it sounds like some others might be up for some sort of delay under the cover of COVID and it's so frustrating to see this happen and when one one wonders whether it would be different if you had a government that actually sort of sat there and had a vision and a plan rather like it did with the COVID-19 pandemic for climate and energy and just sort of set the scene and you actually get the institutions to follow through.
2: Well, so Giles, just uh, quickly, I mean, the five minute rule, the time to be making a submission and talking about it is now there is, although it, you know, we always sort of feel these submissions don't have any effect. If you don't make it, it certainly won't have any effect. And, There are a lot of reasons, I suppose, uh, for supporting the five-minute rule, but in my view of the NEM in the future, it's going to have a lot more batteries because they perform all of these system strength services, and batteries are greatly assisted by the five-minute rule. So that's not a direct reason for bringing the five-minute rule in, but in the end, if that rule is brought in, we'll get more batteries, and that will make for a better NEM uh, indirectly. So... So it's time for all of those uh, people to get out there and be making submissions to the AEMC
1: and uh, asking John Pierce to please explain himself yet again. <laughs> final word, Julian. Um, I, I don't know if um, I, I don't know how to finish. I don't know whether there's any final words that you want to have, or whether sort of being sitting in this job for seven years, whether you're sort of feeling more or less pos- optimistic, or pessimistic about um, the task in front of us. Uh,
3: no, I'd say certainly a lot more optimistic. I mean, success breeds success, and we've seen you know the more we do the, the more we deliver change the more we appreciate how change can be created um you know there's obviously a, a, a lot of major hurdles um that we need to you know, that we see you know, really coming towards us at a, at a rapid rate that we need to overcome probably one of the biggest ones is countering this prevailing view that um a, a transition to renewable some for some reason needs decades more um gas investment um where it, you know, increasingly, as we're observing, um, new gas is often an impediment to to getting to renewables more than more than a bridge to it, and I think that's going to be something that we need a lot of people working on and and just just um, drenching the public debate with that reality. You know, we we know that the research is being done, but I just feel like it's not getting through to the investors that we need it to right now, um, and that's going to pose some really big risks in the next few years about decisions we make, especially within Australia for, for new energy projects. Um, but you know, we are a, a million miles away from, from where at least we were when we got started seven years ago. And I just feel that pace of change building and building and just need more people to get on board. So absolutely make submissions, um, get involved in your, your um, climate organizations or your environmental organizations uh, and just keep making a scene.
1: Keep making a scene. Nice way to end it. Julian, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast this week. That is an
3: absolute pleasure. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, thanks.
1: Good on you. David, um, we'll be back next week. A um, lot more to talk about. We might actually talk about that um, on, on on the subject of gas, the gas import terminal. But I think we might hold that for next week because it's a topic I'd like to go into and um, and, and find more about. Yeah. Thanks once again. Thanks to our sponsors, um, Evergen and uh, Solarite Energy. Thanks to all our listeners. Do leave us a review on your favorite platform or even the Apple one by preference. Uh, just to increase our profile, do check out our other podcasts, particularly the Solomon Insiders podcast. And uh, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, a market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy of the future. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.